0: Welcome to SAFE Radio, hope, health, and healing in these challenging times, with the fundamental message, you are not alone. The SAFE Coalition is a grassroots organization with a focus on providing support for families and individuals living with the disease of substance abuse, focusing on an important goal of destigmatizing the epidemic of substance abuse and mental health issues. My name is Ian Bergen, the co-host of this podcast radio program is Jim Derrick, one of the founders of the Safe Coalition, who used the pain of living with a son who suffers from this disease to motivate him to share his story, take action, and find every way possible to help other families going through what he has been going through. For me as an educator, former teacher and principal, I joined Jim in these podcasts to shine a light on the need for prevention, education, Too many of my former students have been victims. Deaths of despair, which includes suicide, drug overdoses, and diseases associated with alcoholism are claiming hundreds of thousands of lives every year. This was before the pandemic. Numbers are skyrocketing. Too many, especially young people, are seeking destructive ways to deal with the pain of living. They are soothing anxiety, depression, feelings of hopelessness, with substances, through eating disorders, cutting, and tragically too often, seeking permanent solutions to temporary problems by ending their lives. Through this podcast, we hope to help ease the pain, provide healthy, positive ways to better understand painful emotions and how to effectively deal with them. Along Jim's journey, he has met other brave people who have the courage to share their stories and also take action to reassure people, you are not alone. We are here for you. We have such guests today. So I'm going to turn it over to Jim for introductions. Take it away, Jim.
1: Thanks so much, Dr. Bergen. Uh, I am thrilled to be here today with you and especially with our guests. I am pleased to introduce the founder and executive director of Learn to Cope, my friend, Joanne Peterson. Welcome, Joanne.
2: Thank you for having me. (laughs)
1: Learn to Cope. What a great organization that has been so Mm -hmm. instrumental in my personal healing, in Mm the healing of literally thousands of people throughout the Commonwealth and now around the country. And I'm so grateful to have you here, Joanne, and I'm equally grateful to have our friend Kathy Day, who is the Director of Program Development and Training for Learn to Cope. Welcome, Kathy.
3: Hi, Jim. Hi, Anne. It's good to be here. (laughs) Welcome.
1: Yeah. Well, substance use disorder doesn't only impact the individual with the disorder. The impact also includes families and loved ones of that individual. Learn to Cope is an organization that provides the tools and resources that families need in order to get into their own long-term recovery. So we want to talk today about the foundation of Learn to Cope, what is family recovery, and how Learn to Cope can help foster recovery uh, so that families can get back to being healthy, functioning, recovered along with their loved ones from mm-hmm. substance use disorder. So Joanne, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, roughly 2004, you're a mom and uh, you're faced with with substance use disorder in your own family.
2: Well, um, it happened... It- with, um it was really 2001 that my immediate family was faced with it. So for three years, we sort of struggled not knowing, you know, we, we had to learn everything on our own, the continuum of care, detox, how to afford detox. Back in those days, there was no Obamacare, so there was no health insurance. So we had to pay out of pocket, um, you know, learning, you know, just the whole scenario of learning that it started with pills and then ended with heroin. By the time we figured out what was wrong, it was heroin. As a kid, I grew up with, um, my brother was an addict. He used cocaine and my sister was alcoholic with severe mental illness. So when it happened years later with my son, the symptoms Looked a lot like what my sister used to go through with schizophrenia, you know, up all night, sleeping all day, delusional, um, depression, all of a sudden not working anymore. So I wasn't thinking heroin. And, you know, when my husband and I finally discovered what it actually was, it, it took us a long time. So by 2004, we were at our wits end, really. And then there was an incident. It got into the newspapers and stigma is what really made me come out because the stigma I felt as a child growing up in a home where we had a lot of those issues and there was no help for my mom. My mom was the best mother in the world. I would run around with her trying to find halfway houses for my brother when he'd get out of jail. And, you know, I'd go to family parties and people would ask about me and my older sister, but they'd never ask about him. And I'd say, aren't you going to ask me about Jimmy? Sure. (laughs) And then they'd, they'd ask me and then I'd say, well, he's getting out of Concord in June and we're going to try and find him this and we're going to do this and that. So when I was like 10, I was already working on recovery for him. So I guess years later when it happened um, and the stigma started on my immediate, my husband and my other younger children, I I lost it, to be honest with you, um, when the newspapers started really stigmatizing us, so that's the only reason I came out was to get our family's dignity back and to make people understand that this wasn't just here in my house, it was all over. And people need to get educated on what's going on with their kids right now because they're dying. You know, you see these sudden deaths, it it was out there, but people weren't really recognizing it back then. Um, I was at work one day and I used to go to work every day Either I had dropped him off at detox or I had sectioned him or I had done something and then I'd have to go to work, clean up and smile and put on this face like I was okay when meanwhile my whole world was falling apart but not telling anyone what I was going through because I didn't want them to know. and then, obviously, it got, we got outed. But in the meantime, the, a friend of mine that I did confide in at work threw a flyer down on my desk, and it said, there's a stranger in town. What parents need to know? And it was Congressman Keating. Well, back then, he was the DA and he was having a forum in Stoughton. So I called his office and I said, I'd like to go to this forum. I'm one of those families. Like by then, you know, my son was a mess. He Mm -hmm. was actually, he was in jail Mm -hmm. at the time. So I felt like I had nothing to lose other than to just warn other people about it. And, um, you know, so I went to that forum and he asked, he ended up calling me back and asking me if I would speak which I did, and I, you know, there was probably 200 people there, and I wrote down everything that I wanted to say, and I ended up crying all over the paper.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: So I couldn't read it. So that's why I hate to read things. <laughs> the ink just literally like smudged everything. So I just threw that aside and I just said, I want my son back. And I remember that night seeing other parents in the audience crying. And then afterwards they were coming up to me saying, my daughter, my son, my granddaughter, you know, and there was a newspaper reporter there that night and he asked if he could write about what I spoke about. And I said, only if you put my email address at the bottom and I wanna hear from other people because this is great. I finally have people to talk to. Cause that was the first time I met other people that were going through what I was going through. And it was the first time I actually felt good again And I heard from so many people. And then the DA's office set up like a little website for me on, it was, it was really not a website. It was like a Yahoo message board. (laughs) Cause I was answering the phone out in the parking lot at work all the time, you know, with all these, trying to help people find treatment and this and that. So I became like this dear Abby and I was like, I'm just like you, I'm not a professional. I'm learning just like you are. So You know, having that little message board was really helpful because then we started having meetings every week and they grew and grew and grew and grew and grew. grew. We had to move three times to the point where we'd have 80 to 100 people at the meetings. People were outside the door trying to get in. And there were other moms. We call each other the porch girls. We're all very close still today. And, you know, we started like chairing the meetings together. And then we started saying, oh, that person would be a good chairperson. So we started like we were actually developing a model and we didn't even know it.
1: So, Joanne, first of all, it takes a really extraordinary person to step out from the crowd. Mm-hmm. And that's courageous and heroic for somebody to just step up like that. And I can only imagine the pain that you had to walk through because we just, didn't talk about it. And if you talked about it, it was shrouded in shame. It's some back alley guy lying in some, uh, maybe on the common, going to the Pine Street. And it's not here, it's not in the suburbs. We didn't have any concept like we do today that this this is an illness that indiscriminately takes people.
2: You know, I think I started it sort of by accident, but also not only did I wanna save, you know, my son, I needed to save myself right? because I got into a very dark place, which we hear a lot where I didn't know if I could live like this. And I literally had thoughts, you know, of not living anymore. And I thought if I'm going to feel that bad, then I have to do something about this. But I also don't forget growing up my brother did live in the streets. He lived actually, I remember a story one time, my mom used to take the train to Boston every day. She worked for a lawyer's firm and um, I'll never forget. She saw my brother sleeping on a bench in a train station and she was destroyed over that. So I, um, you know, it it shouldn't happen to anyone's child. And, It shouldn't matter where we live. Everybody deserves to have help. And stigma really hurts. And I think stigma really hurt my mom when we were young. Mm -hmm. And that prevented her from being able to get maybe the help that may or may not have been available back then. Back then, they didn't use the words mental illness. It was, your sister's crazy. I saw her walking down the street the other day with rosemary beads around her neck. She had schizophrenia. She couldn't help it. But people were so mean about it. And, you know, I literally was not allowed to sleep over at a girl's house once. And the girl literally said to me, my mom said, you can't come over because your brother's in the newspaper all the time. Mm -hmm. So I grew up with like this blanket of shame. But I could never understand that because he was like the best guy, like. He stole me my first bike.
3: <laughs> <laughs> well,
2: my mother couldn't afford a bike, so to him it was like, I can, I need to get my sister a bike like... So I kind of got that, but most people don't get that.
0: (laughs) But that's why I I interrupt only because the word stigma and, and, and and the importance of education, because some people still to this day say, it's willpower uh, that they're choosing this, you know, it's their fault. We're not going to, we're not going to care about this. This is just a weakness of will. That's why what you guys are doing is so important. I just keep reiterating it. And the stigma the, of which you speak filters down to kids in school when they're suffering from issues, they will not go seek help. They're embarrassed. They're ashamed. We've got to prevent along with treat and stigma is, is the heart and soul of all of this. So I just wanted to jump in with that because it's so important.
1: I'll remind everyone we are speaking with Joanne Peterson and Kathy Day of Learn to Cope. Learn to Cope can be found on the internet at learn the numeral two, cope.org. My name's Jim Derrick, and I'm here with Ann Bergen on Safe Radio. So, Joanne, you're now at a spot where in the early formation, you said you're starting to formulate a mission statement. You're starting to gather people. You're holding what is going to become support groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're starting to understand the fundamentals. Um, and clearly, you've tapped into something. So you know this thing's going to grow. When, when does it click in you that this is an organization? When does it click?
2: So I'll, I still have the letter. In September of 2007, I got a letter in the mail. We had teamed up with um, some folks on the North Shore, Mary Wheeler, who Kathy knows very well, and her sister. Um, Eliza. Eliza. They had these candlelight vigils that I thought were just beautiful. I had spoken to them about why don't we simultaneously have one on the South Shore the same time you're having one on the North Shore, and we thought that would be pretty nice, and we did that. So we had our first vigil in Abington in 2007 and a state rep showed up. His name was Andrew McCarthy and it touched him to the core. I mean, he, you know, there was a lot of people there. There was over a hundred people and they were reading all the names and we were losing a lot of people even back then. Um, We lost like nine kids in seven days once it was awful. Mm -hmm. So we were going through a lot and it really, really touched him. And then I got a letter a few weeks later at home and it said you know commonwealth of massachusetts from the state house and it said congratulations we have earmarked a hundred thousand dollars for the learn to cope organization and i'm like
3: what yeah.
0: <laughs> what organization, not an organization. <laughs> right right that's,
3: that's a my email
2: content. address <laughs> yeah, yeah. which it was my email address learn to cope 2001 at yahoo.com so right I just named learn to cope learn to cope because that's what I was doing. Yeah. So I went, oh, my God. So I walked into my boss, who who by then was allowing me to make copies of these parent packets at the copy center by the thousands of pages. And they were a nonprofit that I worked for. And he loved what I was doing. He knew my son because he had worked there in the summertime. So he he was letting me like help people in the parking lot and whatever. So I go into his office and I said, I got this in the mail. I need to show you. I don't, I have no idea what the, what, what is an earmark? I did not know what an earmark was. I knew nothing about that. He read the letter and he looked at me and he says, I hate to tell you this, but you got to quit your job and start a nonprofit because you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And this is the government giving you money to do it. And I'm like, Oh my God, how am I going to do this? And Then, you know, I met Ron Whitney, who's an attorney through them. And they said, we'll help you, you know, form a nonprofit. I quit my job. I left my vacation, my pension. I had a pension at one time. (laughs) (laughs) I don't have a pension now. Right. But, you know, it was a huge, scary risk. But, you know, I always remember what he said. You're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And I think he was right. Like, I don't think I could ever do really anything else that doesn't have to do with this.
1: Well, I can tell you, I know you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. Um, The amount of people that have been touched and helped are are literally in the thousands. And I may be underestimating that uh, as I speak, um, the tens of thousands. And I'm so personally indebted to Learn to Cope and to you, Joanne, for, for being so courageous. More than that, for being so steadfast, for being such a constant, immovable, person that is behind this organization and frankly behind us learn to cope symbolizes so much to people now it symbolizes support it symbolizes acceptance it symbolizes Mm -hmm. being able to deal with grief and and i reflect on that because you were that mom you were us sitting at your desk having Mm -hmm. to try to put yourself together Mm -hmm. dealing with what could be a terminal illness at home yeah yet you couldn't talk about it. And that is how people find themselves and learn to cope is literally the anecdote to that. So now learn to cope has how many chapters in the Commonwealth? So
2: we have 26, including Florida.
1: Currently meeting by Zoom. And,
2: and I want to say, I don't do all this alone. I have like the the people that come to the meetings and then our team, learn to cope team is amazing. And I, I just want to make sure people know that you know, even though I started and I was, you know, developing this and everything, it was the people coming to the meetings that were healing me at the same time. And then, the, you know, having education was a big deal to me because I felt like years ago, there was no education. That's why people were so easily stigmatized. So I thought if we learn about this and about treatment, and about the brain and whatever we can learn about, then you know maybe the stigma will go away a little bit. But I just yeah. wanted to say, it's not just, it's everybody together. Um, I'm just the fortunate one that was able to start it, I guess.
1: What Joanne was saying is so important. The people that are staffing Learn to Cope, the people that are facilitating are all people with lived experience. Mm-hmm. They're people that can directly empathize um, with all of us. And you do get a feeling that we're all in this together. You surround yourself with great staff and great people are attracted to other good people. And one of those people that I've come to really know, like, respect, and honor as part of this Learn to Cope team who makes this thing work is Kathy Day. Mm-hmm. And Kathy, these Zoom meetings, I'll tell you, you do such an incredible job facilitating these meetings. And Kathy, tell us a little bit about how you got involved with Learn to Cope and maybe a little bit about you.
3: Sure. Um, So first of all, I could hear Joanne tell that story over and over, and I have. And each time I hear her um, talk about it, I'm proud. And I'm proud because um, you say courageous. I sometimes say scrappy, and I mean that in the most loving way. But Joanne has, she identifies things that need to get done. She stands up for what she believes in. She takes care of her people and she fights hard for this. So, um, well, it's true. And then, you know, she said something else that I think is so important, it's been true um, in my experience, is that idea that we all spend so much time in our regular lives, holding ourselves together, Mm -hmm. that when you find somewhere like learn to cope and you don't have to do that anymore, you have authentic conversations with other people that get it and you don't have to have it all together. And I think that's why it becomes such a sacred space for people. And um, for a long time, I worked peripherally around this issue and I was doing HIV work years ago and working with um, Salem Hospital. And they were entertaining the idea of this whole thing, Learn to Cope. (laughs) And so that's how I kind of got to know about Learn to Cope when it started in Salem was the second group maybe Mm -hmm. 15 years ago. But you know, I had the experience where I have a sister who's in long-term recovery from heroin addiction and she's my older sister. And even though I had this um, experience in my family, and I had already kind of gone through the bulk of it prior to um, understanding what Learn to Cope was, I didn't really identify with it right away. Um, You know, the whole concept of it, I thought, you know, why Why do people need that? And then it's when I started interacting with the people and attended a few meetings, um, I understood why it would be important. I had, you know, in a way tried to put it behind me. Um, And I know living with my sister's addiction changed me as a person very much. And I didn't really understand that until many years later. And It's interesting. uh, I remember sitting in a learn to cope meeting at one point and this family member was talking about how kind of insane their home life was, you know, they had to hide things. They were sleeping with their purse under their pillow. Everybody was fighting. Everybody had sort of like a different uh, understanding of what was going on. And I thought, Oh, I would never want my life to be that way. And I was like, hmm, <laughs> my life has been that way. You know, um, and you start to hear from others that are kind of, you know, living this existence that if you didn't have any person in your life that struggled with substance use disorder, you wouldn't understand. Like if I had told people sometimes the scenarios that were happening in my life and they didn't get it, they would have been like, what? And you put up with that? Like that happens? Um, and it's when you find others that get it that you find a little bit of peace and an openness to, you know, share conversations and, and potentially figure out solutions. And even if we don't have all the answers, just looking at people that um, have some compassion for you and understand your stress and um, can see when you're doing better, or can see when you make little changes that really help. It's pretty, pretty amazing. So. I do have a sister who's in recovery, um, for over 20 years now. Um, she, like I said, was my older sister and she'd been using for maybe eight to 10 years. And this was before, um, Oxycontin and she was using heroin and it was not a life any of us understood. You know, I grew up in Sudbury, Mass. Um, you know, it was, you know, Sudbury is the suburbs and she had moved to Boston and, you know, was living a very different life than any of us got or understood. And, And, uh, you know, she's my best friend today. Um, We talked on a daily basis. We never thought we were anything like each other. And now, you know, pre-COVID, when we would show up and see each other, we would be dressed alike, or we would have ran the same errands, you know, that day prior to seeing each other. Like we have a lot of similarities that Mm -hmm. were were not the case when she was using. Um, You know, and as a sibling, it was hard because I didn't understand. I saw what it was doing to my family. We were all in an uproar. Um, you know, I think what it brought out in my personality is probably still true today is I'm the fixer, right? I'm the one that needs to keep everybody happy. I'm the one that uh, will forsake myself um, to try to keep peace. Um, I'm the person that may be drawn to someone that um, I think that I can help, right? I think I do it in a much better way now, a much healthier way than I did, but it speaks to some of the things that siblings go through, you know, that, you know, I'm not going to bother them with what's going on with me meeting my parents because they're already stressed out as it is. They don't need to hear from me. I'll just keep doing what I'm doing.
1: It's it's, uh, it's such a uh, a warped dynamic that gets set off when you have mental illness and substance use disorder in your family. And I personally identify with you sitting in a meeting and saying, what are all these people, these poor people? What are they all talking yeah. about? And Then you realize, my gosh, those poor people. Yeah. Me. Because when you're in <laughs> it, (laughs) It's easy to rationalize all the chaos and to say, well, it's just another day for me. You know, what's the big deal? I can get through this. I don't need any help, you know, and that type of thing. I just want to take a minute and remind everybody we're speaking with Joanne Peterson, the executive director of Learn to Cope, and Kathy Day, who's the director of program development and training at Learn to Cope. My name's Jim Derrick. I'm here with my co host, Dr. Ann Bergen. We're on safe radio, both on WFPR 102.9 FM and at your favorite podcast location. As for Learn to Cope itself, the meetings, what can somebody expect when they walk in or these days Zoom into a Learn to Cope meeting?
3: So um, first of all, I'd have to say that moving from in-person to virtual you know, was abrupt and a little challenging for us because we're very much in-person group. We're warm, we're friendly, we're welcoming. We count on being able to see people's body language and connect with them and sometimes give hugs. And so all of a sudden, like other people to be launched into this virtual world, um, it's been a little bit of a challenge, but we've tried very hard to bring some of that warmth to the virtual meetings as well. Mm -hmm. Um, But what people can expect is, you know, a confidential meeting and the opportunity to talk with other people who are um, peers that have family members who are struggling with the disease of addiction. We're guided by staff and we have trained peer facilitators. So others who have lived experience, that maybe are at a better point in their life and have decided that they want to help out with meetings, which is really kind of the heart and soul of Learn to Cope. Um, To help kind of guide and facilitate conversations, you know, we give opportunities for people who are in crisis to speak, um, and then others to kind of share updates or bring up important topics or say, hey, this is going on, what do you think of this? And, you know, we don't tell anyone what to do, but they do get to hear from other family members who, um have tried things in their own families that maybe worked or didn't work or things they've learned over time. You know going through this is a process, and so we try to give people space to um, have it be a process and consider options. But I think the the main thing I hear often is we don't ever want anyone to have to go through um, things as long as we've gone through things. Right. So to try to maybe shorten the process by, Um, offering some support and some
1: information. One of the things you do so uniquely, you've created a space where someone like myself can be there that maybe has been five, 10 years going to Learn to cope meetings and a newcomer feels equally welcome. And there's Mm -hmm. enough space for that newcomer to, to come in seamlessly into the meeting, to share their tears, their grief, they're on day one maybe of their journey. Everyone to a person is welcoming and that person is folded in And I really want people to know, uh, go to learn to the numeral to cope.org and uh, look at the website. There's a ton of resources on that website, but importantly, look up the meetings and don't be afraid to walk into that or in this case, zoom into that first meeting. I promise you, this is not like other meetings that you go to where they form clicks or there's certain groups of people that have been there and are familiar you pay a lot of of attention to welcoming the newcomers.
3: They're the most important people in the room in a lot of ways. It takes a lot of courage to walk in in person or join a virtual meeting. Um, You don't necessarily always know what to expect and to be able to create space where they feel comfortable enough, camera on or off, microphone on or off, Mm -hmm. they can talk or not, um, but to even start the process of learning and maybe their own healing, it needs to be comfortable. And it needs and to be
2: non-judgmental. I think there's been a few silver linings, too, with the virtual piece. Um, we, um, Magda, one of our other regional managers in the Western Mass, just started our first Spanish-speaking group. So it's all in Spanish. So we're starting to finally get it to other communities that haven't had this support. And then also we've noticed um, on all of our different, most of our different meetings that there's There's more diversity. And I think it might be because it's not as intimidating walking into a room, you know, like Kathy said, you can have your video off or on. Um, So, you know, there's been some silver linings with it too.
1: Learn to cope as a message board, as a forum that's, I don't know, there's got to be 10,000 people on that forum or more, right, Joanne? Um, So there's just a ton of resources there and you can find out everything from how to section your loved one uh, to um, access to Narcan training. That was a groundbreaking thing that Learn to Cope was able to offer, which is free Yes, Narcan training and Narcan at and all Narcan. Of the in-person meetings.
2: Yeah. And we've, we've still been able to provide the training and get the Narcan to people through um, other means being socially distanced. But um, luckily we were still able to provide it. It's a little different but we're still able to do that.
0: Can I just, just ask a question, just out of cur- having followed this for a while and seeing the work that you're doing and, and identifying that feeling of hopelessness that some people feel. What's the status now of uh, sober homes, places for um, where people can go for recovery? Are there more and more of those being offered? Is that something that's happening out there as a result of calling attention to this issue?
2: I don't know if I would say that there's more Um, I think that it's gotten better where people are able to access them again. I know there was a period, um, and I know Kathy might want to jump into like last March when everyone shut down, it was really hard because people were, you know, not able to access, um, sober homes or halfway houses like they, they were before, but that's definitely improving. It's gotten better, um, with time, um. I know that there's been some changes with things like section 35 um, beds are full, you know, so COVID has definitely mm. had a, a large impact on an already raging epidemic. Yeah. Um, and there was a lot of hard things that happened, you know, when somebody would lose somebody, we, you know, you couldn't really, you couldn't go to a service. The families couldn't hold a service. Jim knows of this scenario where a family lost their son and the members all got together and and did a beautiful thing they put you know candles out on the lawn and you know to support that family so you know that's the the members of the learn to cope groups are what really make up learn to cope and they just come together for each other
1: um yeah they sure do i wanted to kind of roll back the clock a little bit to talk about the family and why family recovery is important. Um, and I don't want to talk about it as if everybody knows. I sure didn't know. And I was in the thick of it that I had a problem. So can you describe the process that typical family member might be going through when they, A, they realize that their loved one is sick, then they get caught up in all the chaos. They walk into their first learn to cope meeting and and. What is the process they they typically go through?
2: I'll, I'll let Kathy jump in too, but the first thought I have is a lot of times, and I went through this myself, a, a lot of times if, if it's a couple, whether they're married or divorced even, a lot of times they have to come together to try to figure this out and they might not be on the same page, which is really difficult. And then you've got the siblings saying, why are you letting this happen? And why are you letting that happen? And so the parents are really almost like, it's like they're being pulled in so many directions. And if they're not on the same page, it's really hard. So I think family recovery, when they start coming to meetings and meeting other families, like there's a lot of dads that come to our meetings and that's great because sometimes you'll hear somebody say, Oh, my husband doesn't want to come because he doesn't want to sit in a sewing circle. Right. It's like, well, he won't. There's all kinds of dads. right Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I, yeah, I think you bring up a great point. I know in yeah. my own uh, family dynamic, one of us was the enabler, and the other one was the i'll call it the police officer. but I see that a lot with the families we work with mm-hmm. through safe is that there's typically the enabler and and then the the bad cop on neither one of them are doing anything wrong. It's just the nature of the dynamic that this illness sets off in the family Mm -hmm. you know one person's putting a pillow up for him and the other one wants to clobber him uh, or clamp down so so that's one dynamic so the person that walks in can you've got a mirror sitting right in front of you the mirror of the other families and it can really be an aha moment like wow number one they're arguing about the same things we argue about Mm
3: -hmm.
1: so there's that immediate identification right
3: Or there's the families that walk in and they literally have a checklist and they want to get all the answers so they can just be done with this. Yeah. Okay. There's a problem. I, you know, they're trying to grasp at some control. They're logical people. Well, this can't be. So I'm going to get myself to a group. I'm going to find all those answers. And then I'm just going to, I'm going to fix it. It's going to be done. And there's that dawning of, what do you mean you've been here six years, seven years, eight years, you know, not because maybe the problems continued that long, but I think As family members, we often get as sick as our loved ones do with the way that we uh, wrap ourselves around or get involved in the drama or um, play into the different scenarios that happen. And it often takes time to figure out our role in it, right? And then I know for me, I need that reinforcement. I need to hear from people, oh. You know, I'm, did I just say that out loud? I'm doing that again. You know, I need, and I also need to help other people.
1: And I know for me, it was a roller coaster. (laughs) I was on the same roller coaster my son was. So if he was doing well, then I'd be doing well. If he was doing poorly, I'd be doing poorly, which is the definition of codependency mm-hmm. and so that codependency is something that you reckon with as a learned to cope member and you mm-hmm. you don't even know that you're talking about codependency at the beginning and people start talking about things like separation a healthy separation mm-hmm. you know detach mm-hmm. with love but mm-hmm. whatever the phrase is that, that makes you think of look I need to allow my loved one to have their own experience yeah. good or bad mm-hmm. and I need to be able to be okay in the midst of all that chaos and the only way I've found that works is through group support, like Learn to Cope. And we see members come back year after year. Their loved one could be in recovery for five, 10 years or longer, much yeah. longer. Right, Joanne? And they're yeah. still loyal Learn to Cope members. Yes. Mm-hmm. Because they've made that critical connection
2: mm-hmm. that
1: they have an illness that mm-hmm. needs regular treatment and recovery work to be reinforced and part of that recovery work is to what they say in aa 12 step or be of service to other people and you see these wonderful people taking Mm -hmm. other new families by the hand and walking them through those dark days because they remember it wasn't long ago i was like that right and it Mm -hmm. just keeps going and going and the recovery keeps gaining momentum
0: it's unbelievable how much people give back can I just speak about just yep. just follow up to just listening to you and something I thought about over the years, too, is these kids who are coming from families in our schools, you know, they're witnessing parents fighting. They're witnessing their siblings incarcerated. Mm-hmm. They're watching a parent fall down um, drunk um, and they come into school every day and they're we're trying to teach them, you know, Shakespeare and but it speaks to the need. I'm going to keep reiterating it when we have these conversations, Jim, as we go forward, too, is we've got to start younger with these groups and and, and identifying kids who are coming from these situations and, and providing support and help for them at, at, at a very, very young age because they are victims as well, as you were saying, you know, right? And it's that need to just as what you're doing is to keep that conversation going because these kids are suffering. And we know the pandemic has just made it much, much worse. We're just seeing it. And you bring
1: up such an important point as an educator and and Ian and I sit on the Franklin Public Schools Substance Abuse Task Force. And we're constantly talking about the social and emotional health of the youngest among us all the way down to early elementary school and realizing that the Joanne Peterson that walked into her workplace trying to hold it together can also be represented in a nine-year-old going to class and imagine the emotion and the sheer terror that that child may feel. And then as educators are really working to identify those problems early so that they don't become mental health issues and, and issues with substance use disorder down the road. One of, my goals is to see family recovery more front and center in the rehab environment. The emphasis needs to be appropriately sized for families, meaning that it's really urgent that you get the family into recovery and into support system. It's not just sort of a nice thing to do.
2: One of the scenarios I've always used is um, diabetes. So, you know, you hear that a lot. People say, you know, the disease of diabetes and addiction, same type thing. So when it comes to family and a family member, which I've experienced this, has diabetes, the entire family needs to be educated on how to recognize symptoms like hypo or hyperglycemia. How do you know whether to give them orange juice or sugar? How do you know if they've had too much or not enough insulin? They could go into diabetic shock. So say that person with the diabetes goes to a specialized hospital like Joslyn in Boston for a few weeks, and then they're going to go home. The family gets educated on what to look for, how to take care of them, what kind of diet they should be eating. But yet one of your loved ones can go to a detox and oh, we can't talk to you. There's HIPAA laws and this and that. And that always drove me crazy because I've had both scenarios and I'd be like, how come I can get all this education about, diabetes, but I, you won't even talk to me when it comes to, you know, my, then he was a child. Um, It was so frustrating to me. Um, So yes, absolutely. I think that's hugely important because if you're going to spend the money or the time and be away in treatment. And then that person, if they're going to go and live home, and by the way, I hate the home is not an option. I hate that. I don't know. It sort of grew legs um, and you hear it a lot. And sometimes home is an option if someone's had the right pathway for them. But if they're going to go home, it's not fair to just send them home with the family not having any idea how they can be a part of the solution and not become a part of the problem by, by like nagging and asking all kinds of questions. And it's like let them be, but also keep your your radar up, look for signs. Um, but and, that and the, doesn't happen and very much.
1: Statistics are out there that the families that welcome a, uh, someone back into with that's recovering from substance use disorder uh, back into the family unit, that person's chances for sustaining long term recovery go up if yeah. the family is in recovery as well because those old what you just described those patterns of behavior that they were used to when they were using are now gone they've been dealt with they're appropriate yeah. you know the family's healed would you agree with that Kathy
3: yes i mean like what is the success rate of someone that has started to do some work and then they're thrown right back into their old environment it's too difficult to to you know maintain those changes that you've made without support and so that's why sending someone back into an unhealed family isn't good for anyone right. you know but the more people are doing to educate themselves the better chances you know are there. But we also say that people need professionals too and parents really struggle because we do have some professionals that attend our groups too and this is what they do with other people but it's so different when it's your person mm-hmm. right you know that we're, we're so busy being parents and family members and loved ones that really we can't be their professionals for our loved ones who need help. We need to send them to professionals that can help them. And then we need to be family and we need to love them and we need to change our ways and support them, but we're not their professionals. Right. Time and time again. And I just want to jump in and, and um, people always think it's crazy when I say this. So I love learn to cope and our members are amazing. Right. And they make up learn to cope, but learn to cope isn't the end all be all either. Like, we want people to get help no matter what it is. And if Learn to Cope fits their needs and that's what works for them, that's awesome. But if it doesn't and they need something else, depending on what level of crisis they're in or whatever, then we'll help them find whatever that mm-hmm. other thing is. And then if you want to come back, please come back. You know what I, I mean? It's just, It's got to be what's right for the family.
1: There's no one way to recover for a family or for a loved one. We yes. learn, to, learn to Cope is there to, to meet you where you're at and to say, how can we help?
2: And we're not there to judge. No one's there to judge the pathway to recovery that their loved one took, whether it's medically attri- assisted treatment or, you know, that's not what we're there for um, at all. So, you know, if somebody's alive with his breath, there's hope. That's the way we, yeah, we look at it.
1: How is learned to Cope funded?
2: So we are funded by the department of public health, Bureau of Substance Addiction Services. And, um, You know, we've just been very lucky to have the support of the Commonwealth so that we can keep our our meetings filled with education, Narcan, access to Narcan. We join with a lot of other coalitions like SAFE around the state. The overdose education is very important. We still, you know, are involved with legislature. we, We speak wherever we're asked to speak. Although when it comes to schools, we don't speak to the children, we'll speak to their parents. Yeah. We would rather talk with the parents about signs and symptoms and, and yeah. what to look for.
3: Since our jump to Zoom, we've um, actually grown in ways that I feel like um, are very true to learn to cope and try to look at what else can we be offering people during this time where we're not limited geographically. So what virtual offerings, so for example, Joanne was talking about the first Learn to Cope Spanish group, which has been a long time coming, and right now it's virtual, it's home will, it's in-person home will eventually be in Springfield, Mass, mm-hmm. but there'll always be a virtual component too, because then you can draw Spanish-speaking members from all over the state or even beyond, That's which great. is amazing, or well, we've implemented something called Well-Being Weekends, so we're, we're contracting with people in recovery who are wellness professionals, provide classes uh, for learn to cope family members during off meeting times so weekends um, so we're trying to give them tools so these are all free to members and for instance right now we're doing a nighttime meditation on friday nights and this was our second week this past week and there was 35 people that came truly so you just have to be comfortable with camera off mute off but you're with others and then we do a recorded sunday reset class to try to um, get people ready for the week ahead, to de-stress, to learn some techniques that they can use throughout the week to um, help them cope. You know, cause we talk about self-care, but we're like, why aren't we giving them practical examples? And, and <laughs> this so is it's great. fun to move in those, in those directions. You
2: know, and, I don't, and this was all Kathy's doing and all of her creation. So
3: that's. And we're supporting people in recovery.
1: I was just yeah. about during, to
3: say. like during COVID where they may not be able to be in a studio or You know, working with people in person, this allows us to, you know, learn to cope, to pay them, to do what they love to do to help families.
1: And on top of that, we're treating family recovery just like it should be treated, which is Mm -hmm. you need to incorporate healthy self-care. And we're going to give you some outlets for that.
2: And we were on a meeting, uh, I think it was Monday night, and one of the um, meeting members had been to the Friday night meditation and she fell asleep, you know. (laughs) Like after it was over. So obviously it worked.
3: (laughs) And people are trying it that have never done it before. And again, it's all designed. You don't have to have any experience. And we'll change up our wellness topics. Those are two things that we're focusing on for an eight-week series. And then we'll look at um, who's going to do the next eight weeks and what that's going to look like. That's that's great. So so anyone that's interested in finding out about our online Learn to Cope meetings can visit our website, learnthenumber2cope.org. And they can click on the stay connected form, and choose the meeting that they'd like to be connected to, and then they'll get an email from their um, their regional support person or regional manager, and they'll um, receive Zoom links. And we have meetings Monday through Thursday, and they are seven to eight thirty p.m. And once you're on that email list, then you get information also about our webinars and well-being weekends, and um, we have something exciting happening with um, the Broadway play, Jagged Little Pill, and. Uh, There's a ton of actual stuff that's been happening recently.
1: And earlier I referenced the fact that um, Learn to Cope is more than just a support group, you know, and that the advocacy and the change that Learn to Cope Mm -hmm. has spawned both locally and nationally blows my mind. Yeah. And I'm so thankful for it. And I had the honor and privilege of being at Learn to Cope's 15th anniversary. Oh, yeah. Celebration Mm -hmm. in uh, Mm -hmm. Quincy. And Governor Charlie Baker was there. Joanne's been an advisor to the Baker administration relative to opioids. She's worked with many, many people and has often called on for her expertise. Governor Baker was there and um, he got up to speak and went to open his mouth and burst into tears mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. looking at all of us. And, you know, it says a lot about Charlie Baker, mm-hmm. but it also says a lot about Learn to Cope and Joanne Peterson and the staff because mm-hmm. what that said to me as a parent in that moment, is that the governor of Massachusetts gets it. Mm -hmm. He didn't feel separate from us. He felt like he was one of us. He empathized directly with us. He spoke about the unfathomable loss that that many of us feel, whether we have lost somebody to this disease or whether we're living with somebody who's actively battling this disease. And to see that level of understanding and empathy coming from the governor of the Commonwealth of Massachusetts tells you a lot about what this organization has done for all of us and for the landscape, because then what of course comes out of that is appropriate funding for uh, initiatives that we all need to support recovery. Um, And I could go on and on about that. I just heard about mass health now, including recovery coaching Mm -hmm. uh, among other things in their, uh, in their coverage. All of these things happen only when, our leaders can understand on a personal level, like Charlie Baker does, they can empathize directly with all of us because that's when, that's when change really happens. And Joanne, you've, you've been a part of the, I know Mike Botticelli is someone that you know and you've worked with in the past. And I, I had the opportunity to meet him and he speaks so fondly and highly of what Learn to Cope has done. We don't get to where we are today in 10 years without efforts. Mm -hmm. like have happened at learn to cope and joanne's quick to point out it's not just joanne peterson it's Mm -hmm. the hundreds and hundreds of people volunteers and and meeting members and kathy days and staff people that have been a part of this incredible movement that has changed the landscape of, of the way we're living with this disease and before we end i just wanted to share a quick story i walked into joanne peterson's office um 2016 and um For people that haven't been in her office before, she has newspaper clippings of the obituaries that line her office. As Kathy said earlier, uh, her heart is forward and and very present for all of her members. And so I walked into her office and she looked at me and she said, you don't look so good. And after thanking her, (laughs) I said, I don't feel so good. And I was there to pick up, I think, Narcan for our local meeting. And I, she asked me what the problem was. And at that moment, my son was, uh, had eloped from treatment down in Florida and his life was in jeopardy. And um, she gave me a phone number and said, call this number immediately. And um, when Joanne gives you a number and tells you to call it, you call it. And I did, and as a result, my son was rescued off the streets of Florida. And I share the story because it gives you a window into the people behind this organization and in this case, Joanne Peterson, who take the time, she does that for all of the people that that consider themselves members of Learn to Cope, new or old. Um, it's that direct empathy of I've been there, I know how you feel, I recognize that look in your eye, how can I help? And um, I'm just uh, very indebted to your friendship and to everything that Learn to Cope's done for all of us over the years.
0: Just listening and being sort of a, a, an objective observer. Clearly the word that keeps coming to my mind, all, all all three of you, is the word courage, because it's always about that willingness to share your story and to be out there. And once you do that, what it does, it, it, it empowers so many other people. So I'm in awe of the courage and, and the commitment and You know, we talk about it takes a village. Well, it sure does. And you guys are all part of that village. So I just on a personal note, just to to thank you for all the work that you're doing.
1: You are a family member or know of a family member that is suffering. Please don't suffer in silence. Reach out to Learn to Cope. Learn to, the numeral to cope.org on the website and the phone number.
2: It's 508-738-5148.
1: So thanks once again to our guests, Joanne Peterson and Kathy Day. For Dr. Ann Bergen, I'm Jim Derrick. We'll see you next week on Safe Radio.